Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced in the leafy surrounds of Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us and a wide range of short courses and graduate degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. Go check it out. And today, he's back with me in the studio. I've got Paul Vilvold. Paul is a post postdoctoral fellow at Crawford School of Public Policy. How are you, Paul? G'day, Julian. Nice to be here. It's very good to have you back, Paul. Looking at the news over the past few days, I guess no one of us really could get past a, an, another two mass shootings in the US and Texas and Ohio. And of course, Donald Trump's response around condemning racism and bigotry and the outside world looks at this and wonders why. Why can't there? Is it does it seem to be so hard to to get change in U.S. gun laws? What are your thoughts on that, Paul? Yeah, I guess it's pretty easy for people from Australia to to say or or elsewhere to say, "Oh, look, why isn't there a, an actual response? Why can't there be some leadership like we saw in New Zealand recently after the Christchurch massacre uh, to actually take?" Uh, automatic or semi-automatic weapons uh, you know, out of a society. Because it is possible. Yeah, because it is possible to do. But I, I'd suggest that it's not good to just say, oh, well, you know, this is stupid. The American society is broken. Why can't they just fix it? I, I'd say there are two key reasons why that's not going to happen immediately. And there are some lessons there in terms of Australian politics and politics in other countries. Now, the first one is... Vested interests. Obviously, the National Rifle Association is very powerful, uh, provides a lot of donations to uh, politicians, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, And, you know, we can see that in other countries. We see it in Australia, for example. This week it was announced that Australia is going to have an inquiry into nuclear energy. Now, that wouldn't happen if there weren't some vested interests pushing, uh, pushing for that. But putting that to one side, I think the second really important thing is it's about social identity. And it's clear that in the US there are a very significant proportion of its citizens see owning a gun and being able to protect themselves as being part of their identity. It's part of what makes them American and the society that they're in. And I think one of the interesting things about this is that Second Amendment rights and the right to carry arms is not necessary is a fairly recent phenomenon. Uh, I think it really goes back about forty years or so. And there's a good uh, article on the ABC today and a great podcast uh, from Radio Lab from from last year talking about how the NRA started out as a very different organisation and then in the late seventies as state governments tried to take weapons away from the Black Panthers, uh, there was a response. Uh, from from the NRA and the NRA changed a lot. And I think it's important to think about how social identity can be constructed and how it can be changed. And in this country, we can think about some seemingly intractable political issues like climate change or, or, or water management and think, all right, well, there are some people in our society who part of their social identity is... Uh, maybe their coal jobs or, or farming or whatever it might be. And when there is a policy change that is seen as a threat to that identity, uh, people aren't just going to go, oh, well, we can see that this will be best for the collective or, or, or end up in a more sustainable economy or whatever else. People feel threatened. And I think 
one of the things that really upset me uh, when after the recent election result is lots of people posting on Twitter and Facebook, oh, why can't we just get rid of Queensland? You know, why can't we just you know, push Queensland out of Australia? That's exactly <laughs> the problem, though, that kind of attitude, right? It, exactly, right? People need to be brought along. We live in a democracy and that doesn't necessarily mean rule by the majority in practice, it means that we've all got to bring everyone along together. And social identity is one of the most important things we have to think about in terms of public policy. And I guess that's an extremely slow-going process as well, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and social identity can be constructed, but it also can be, can be changed and people can have multiple social identities as well, right? That is true. I guess even if you if we think about people who migrate to other countries, mm -hmm. like there's different social identities at play there as well. So change is, is absolutely possible, as Paul said, but it is a very slow going process and you need to get people involved in that process and talk to them and don't do that in a way that where you feel like you where they feel like they're being attacked, but they're being part of the change process and they're actively asked on how to do that best. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's incumbent upon uh, politicians or policymakers or people who want to influence policy to uh, talk to everyone who is affected by potential policy changes and not just disregard them. I think one of the most memorable v visions or images uh, in for me was the picture of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority you know, back many years ago when the, when the draft uh, got guideline to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was released in Griffith and it was a bunch of bureaucrats standing up on the stage talking down to a, a big group of people who were scared. And that's not a participatory process. That's not genuine engagement. It's more, it, it, it looks like more like consultation. And I don't think that's the right way to achieve social change. So you've heard, listeners, what Paul and I think about this topic, but we actually want to know what you think about it. So you can get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook. That's our Facebook Policy Forum pod group. Just type that into the search bar and come on board. Or you can, of course, also send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And in that uh, Facebook podcast group this week, we had a lot of discussions. You basically helped us build most of our recent, uh, most recent episode of Democracy Sausage. Do check it out. We publish it every Monday. And you had so many great questions. So thank you so much for that. And we also discussed climate emergencies in, in the world from the importance of language to walking the talk and the cognitive dissonance of society when it comes to exploiting our planet's resources as well as the poor. So thank you all so much for contributing. And if you're not a member yet, pause the podcast here. We're not going anywhere. And just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. Okay, so let's get into today's topic, which is quite a depressing one as well. It's human rights in Southeast Asia and the role of third parties, the UN, ASEAN, China and the US, in influencing the actions of countries in the region. From violence against the Rohingya in Myanmar to President Duterte's support for extrajudicial killings in the Philippines to intensifying efforts in Cambodia to curtail political freedom, Southeast Asia has seen very many human rights violations in the past few years. And it seems that international and regional organizations, as well as third countries, have a hard time addressing these acts of state-sanctioned violence. A recent inquiry into the UN's role in Myanmar, for example, gave collective responsibility to both the UN civil service and UN member states for the atrocities committed in the 2017 crisis. So today we want to ask, are human rights becoming less protected across Southeast Asia? And how effective are third parties in influencing human rights policies in the region? We really got a great lineup of guests for this, don't we, Paul? We certainly do, Yulia. Uh, we have Dr. Catherine Renshaw, who's Associate Professor at the Australian Catholic University and Deputy Head of the Thomas More Law School. Catherine's come straight to us from her talk about human rights and participatory politics in Southeast Asia at the Bell School. We're also joined by Hunter Marston. Hunter is a PhD student at the ANU Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. And prior to joining us at the ANU, he worked as a Senior Research Assistant at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. And we're also joined here by Dr. Cecilia Jacob, 
Cecilia is a senior lecturer at the ANU Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs, where she holds a three-year Discovery Early Career Researcher Award uh, from the Australian Research Council to study human, uh, UN human protection practices. Thank you, Paul. That really is a great panel. We're just about to get started. But before we do, listeners, please don't forget to get in touch with us. We are on Facebook, Policy Forum Pod. That's our group there. We're on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or email us at podcast at policyforum.net. And also don't forget to stick around for the third part of our podcast where we discuss some of your suggestions and questions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hear from our panel. Welcome, Cecilia. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome, Catherine. Hello. And welcome, Hunter. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. So let's dive right in. What are human rights and why are they important? I would say while human rights are universal, uh, the conception of human rights uh, vary greatly from country to country. Uh, If we're talking about Southeast Asia, um, some of these states have regarded human rights as developmental rights um, and the uh, China model, uh, for instance, has promoted uh, stability, social cohesion as a human right, uh, which stands in contrast to the United States and Western conception of human rights as individual liberties. And Catherine, what are your thoughts? Well, there's a long, long tradition not specific to Western liberal states of protecting fundamental attributes of human beings to do with their personal security, their autonomy, their subsistence rights, enough food and clothing and shelter. And it's possible and lots of studies and thinking has been done around looking at how these basic essentials have been necessary to all people at all times. And so it's not uncommon to ascribe the word rights to these things because of their importance to everyone. So in a way, basic necessities. Cecilia, what would you add to that? Yes, so human rights are basic standards and basic needs that we would expect that people should deserve just um, by the very fact of them being a human being and in respect for their dignity. So uh, rights being something that perhaps individuals can own, but something that also governments and other actors have a responsibility to ensure that those are protected or provided. Yeah, so now that we've got a bit of an idea what we mean when we talk about human rights, um, let's turn a bit to the United Nations and regional organizations such as ASEAN who have implemented the Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. And despite all of these efforts, Southeast Asia has seen many violations of human rights, rights in the past few years. What is your opinion on the state of human rights more broadly in the region, Catherine? Southeast Asia contains a lot of developing nations. And those are nations that have historically had difficulty in realising the rights of people because of intractable problems to do with um, economic subsistence and ensuring that there's a level of development sufficient to fulfil people's basic rights to food and shelter and clothing. For a long while, Southeast Asian leaders said that ensuring basic economic rights was more important than protecting the civil and political rights of people and that emphasis should be given to economic rights like this. What we've seen in the last 20 years is that it's not been the case that the economic rights of people have been protected in the absence of civil and political guarantees. So the thinking looking at Southeast Asia is that states that have stronger levels of genuine political participation have also been better at protecting both the economic and social and the civil and political rights of people within those states. So the low level of democracy in some parts of the region is one of the reasons why it's been difficult to realise civil and political and economic and social rights. So a challenge around around democracy then. Would you agree with that, Hunter? Right. Um, I think in Southeast Asia's case, uh, development and economic uh, progress has uh, often come before uh, human rights in the sort of Western conception of um, uh, a counter to government um, uh, development-led initiatives to sort of inject uh, citizen voices into the process. Yeah. So I would say that 
the politics and the, the state of politics and democracy in the region um, has been a really strong indicator of where debates are heading with um, human rights in the region. I think we have seen some positive trends in the past few years and, and Catherine's been able to speak about um, those developments uh, in ASEAN, which is positive, but we are also seeing these are linked into worldwide trends where we're seeing a growth in nationalism and populism and that's been linked to economic downturn uh, globally and and also, you know, a shift in power, I guess, with Trump and the decline of relative US power has actually had ripple effects across the globe. And so this has affected Southeast Asia quite a lot where we have seen a rise of populism or more assertive authoritarian governments. And so they're closely interrelated. Globalisation, though, Cecilia, it hasn't been an entirely negative effect in relation to Southeast Asia. So at the same time as we've seen exactly the sorts of trends you're talking about, we've seen networks of civil society actors, for example, be able to mobilise and take regional level NGO action in response to some of the big economic um, disasters and economic plans of governments that are not necessarily positive for people within the region. Now, just uh, focusing in a little bit now, uh, when we think about violations of, of civil, civil and political rights in Southeast Asia, it's difficult to get past the violence committed against the Rohingya in Myanmar and thousands, with thousands of people killed and, and displaced. Now, just recently, the Myanmar government has begun to hold repatriation talks with Rohingya leaders in Bangladesh. Catherine, do you think these talks hold any promise? The most recent uh, reporting about those talks is not positive, actually, because the Myanmar government hasn't guaranteed what most of the Rohingya claim is, is an essential to them coming safely back, which is basic rights of citizenship and security. And the promise from the government of Myanmar is that there are processes on foot and that those processes will be played out when the Rohingya return to Myanmar. But this is problematic for the Rohingya because for many decades they've been requiring the same basic protections that haven't been fulfilled by the government of Myanmar. So it's a very difficult situation and that there is there is no solution visible from where we are right now. And just to follow up on that, uh, I guess to, to think of this more from a, a multilateral perspective, uh, ahead of the ASEAN Regional Summit in Bangkok in June, a number of international human rights groups called on Southeast Asian leaders to rethink their approach to the Rohingya crisis. And I think they accused an ASEAN report of, of, of whitewashing uh, what was happening. Why is it, do you think, that ASEAN is, is seemingly turning a blind eye or do you think that is, a, I guess, a, an unfair perspective? Well, ASEAN has a long history of not making comments specifically critical of its member states. And as an organisation, it has never made a public human rights comment about the behaviour of one of its member states. I mean, Indonesia's behaviour in, in Timor-Leste, for example, and many other examples across the region. So from one perspective, its attitude in relation to the Rohingya crisis is just in keeping with its traditional pattern of behaviour. We have seen strong unilateral statements made by countries like Malaysia and Indonesia about the suffering of the Rohingya. And um, Indonesia has itself exhorted ASEAN to take stronger steps and to invoke stronger language in relation to what's happening to the Rohingya. I don't think that, or ASEAN claims, it's not without quiet influence in relation to Myanmar and its statement and its approach is that more can be achieved through quiet diplomacy than megaphone diplomacy. It's said that for many years. Um, there is some historical evidence of where ASEAN's been successful on issues by using quiet diplomacy The in relation to Myanmar as well. So the Cyclone Nagan, Nagas crisis um, was one good example of ASEAN effectively engaging with Myanmar where the rest of the world failed. Nonetheless, I, I think there are a few people who would disagree with the fact that um, stronger efforts should be made by ASEAN in relation to the Rohingya crisis and need to be for the sake of the security of ASEAN states themselves who are affected by Rohingya refugee issues washing up on their shores. We saw that with terrible effect in 2015. 
um, and Rohingya refugees on the Andaman Sea seeking security on the shores of um, on Thailand and Indonesia and Malaysia. Just to, to follow up on one of those, um, the points about, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the failure of the rest of the world, Cecilia, ASEAN's not the only organisation that's received criticism. And I, I believe a recent report into the involvement of the UN in Myanmar uh, assigned collective responsibility for the 2017 crisis to both the UN civil service, as it were, or the agencies and, and UN member states. What do you think are some of the hurdles that UN organisations face in effectively uh, you know, addressing crises such as these? Thank you. And um, I'll talk about that report directly in just a second. But I think um, linking on from this, I think it's really important to note that when we talk about the international community's response, um, it is a really important starting place to look at the regional level. I think we can point the finger at the United Nations and say that they've failed or the international community at large has failed. But I think these regional solutions is really where we need to start. This is where we have the closest level relationships between states where we have the greatest legitimacy and the, in ASEAN's case, an architecture around humanitarian assistance and disaster response, preventive diplomacy are all areas that could be um, developed if there was political will. So going up to the international level, the report that you were referring to came out recently. It was authored by um, a former UN official, Gert Rosenthal, who identified what he called systemic and structural failure of the United Nations to prevent um, this situation from occurring. And much of the blame comes down to uh, the way that the UN agencies in the field were operating. So the fact that there was um, a lack of clarity or a coherent strategy among UN agencies um, to come to agree on a common strategy. So those who preferred to have this quiet diplomacy to think about the long-term development, long-term political engagement, not wanting to destabilise the relationship that they had inside the country with the government and in that case not being vocal to criticise um, the human rights abuses that didn't just break out, you know, out of nowhere in 2017, but were systematically happening in the years following up to this major escalation of violence that we saw in August 2017. Uh, and that was opposed to the more uh, human rights oriented UN agencies inside the country who wanted to be, to vocally criticise um, the uh, Myanmar government who really wanted to push hard on action. So he argues in this report that what we saw was actually very similar to the circumstances in Sri Lanka. So at the end of the civil war at um, the end of 2008 to 2009, uh, where the UN was identified in, in a later report, um, again, for systemic failure, where they had a presence in the ground, there was sufficient early warning and information, um, but there was a lack of a co coherent strategy um, between the agencies to be effective uh, in prevention but, and also timely response. Just to follow up on that quickly, I, I guess it sounds like a, a fragmentation of, of responsibility or across different agencies or a lack of coordination. What, what sort of, I guess, what are the feasible options uh, to respond better in the future? Well, this is the, I guess, the, the sad irony of this particular case in Myanmar was that following uh, the 2011 uh, independent report in Sri Lanka, the UN did actually adopt a strategy, the Human Rights Upfront Strategy, um, which was designed to prevent this kind of a situation from happening again. It was actually designed to link up uh, field offices, information sharing, coordination between the UN agencies. And the incoming Secretary General Guterres, he came uh, from 2017 onwards, actually started to implement a lot of these institutional reforms um, to link up the, the offices at the, the local field and also to provide that political backstopping at uh, the UN headquarters level. So actually, theoretically, these reforms and the institutional changes that were taking place should have addressed these deficits that we saw play out in Myanmar. But what we did see was the politics playing again, where the resident coordinator was having um, difficulty in uh, finding a balance between raising those questions of development and political and governance reforms on one hand, um, and the, on the other hand of raising these difficult human rights issues um, that 
she should have done in terms of the, the human rights upfront strategy, but also getting um, that support from the United Nations where um, the preventive diplomacy was really, um, it was it was happening, but it was not taking, it wasn't happening at a level that um, was applying sufficient pressure. Um, so, so these are the kinds of uh, dynamics that were going on within the organisation. So at the end of the day, again, I don't think the UN can be responsible preventing every single kind of atrocity that comes out. And there are limits, obviously. But the question here is, could they have done more? And uh, I guess the answer is yes, they probably could have given the information and access that they did have. Uh, just to piggyback on that, I was going to add that um, while the report on the UN um, was pretty damning, the uh, Myanmar government has also put up a whole lot of obstacles to the UN operations in Rakhine State in particular, uh, barring supplies and the free flow of uh, travelers and special rapporteurs actually being denied access to the ground to assess uh, the situation in uh, in their own with their own eyes uh, on the ground, so I, th I think that the Myanmar government has made it deeply problematic for the international community through the UN to engage and to provide an independent assessment of what's happening uh, occurring in Rakhine State in particular. So we heard a bit about the incredible complexity of the issue and the incredible complexity of involving both regional and also. Um Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Larger global organizations and trying to, to influence uh, the government in Myanmar, but there's also other also other players, of course, as states that are trying to um, assert their kind of ideas. And over the last decade, particularly, China has um, expanded its economic and strategic relations with Myanmar. And Beijing has also been quite active in facilitating talks between the government and the ethnic militia. Hunter, what are some of the concerns about China getting more involved with Myanmar? Well, Myanmar has a very uh, complex history with uh, China um, supporting the uh, communist insurgent groups within the country's north in the uh, 60s and in its early um, independence. Uh, so Myanmar has a historical distrust towards China, its neighbor, and still has a number of uh, border disagreements with the larger country to the north. Uh, but if you look back to the more recent history of the 90s and 2000s, the previous military regime became very concerned about China's uh, heavy-handed influence and, and you could argue domination of the country's economy and um, the impact on society. So many Myanmar analysts uh, suppose that the part of the reason behind the country's political and democratic uh, openings stemmed from the country's um, vulnerability to Chinese domination and the willingness to uh, bring in international investment to diversify economic flows. Um, so it's a bit ironic now that the uh, civilian government in power has become in many ways more reliant on Chinese investment and diplomatic protection. Aung San Suu Kyi, who for years pushed uh, against the military government and was supported by uh, the West and um, uh, uh, advocated for economic sanctions by the West on Myanmar, uh, now finds herself isolated from the West and actually uh, – working very hard to uh, restore ties and, and maintain warm relations with China. So she's traveled to China a number of times since 2015 before the election that brought her government into power. She's been to the last two Belt and Road Forums in Beijing and most recently in April came back from uh, China's Belt and Road Forum with 1 billion yuan in development grants. Um, China remains the largest economic investor with a third of total FDI or foreign direct investment in the country. So it still maintains a very uh, strong hand in the country and it's advocated its own approach to development and rights and politics uh, to uh, promote development first rather than any Western liberal politi uh, political reforms um, that might bring about uh, a change in the country's stance towards China. 
we heard a lot about Myanmar, and it's, but it's only one example of uh, countries in Southeast Asia where human rights are being undermined. In Southeast Asia, Asia's recent history, it's quite liter- literate with uh, actual potential geopolitical conflicts where third countries play an important role in other countries' politics. So, Hunter, in 2013, the Obama administration announced its strategic pivot to the Asia-Pacific. Economic and political relations between the U.S. and Vietnam have become closer, and Thailand is often cited as one of Washington's oldest allies in the region. Uh, How much leverage or interest does the U.S. have in taking up human rights issues with governments of old allies like Thailand or even Vietnam? Well, uh, perhaps Cecilia and Catherine have uh, different thoughts on this. Uh, I'm not sure that the U.S. has a great deal of leverage on the human rights side. Um, And I think, in fact, the Trump administration has uh, taken a much different stance to the Obama administration um, vis-a-vis Thailand and the Philippines in particular, trying to bring those allies back into the fold. Um, Thai Prime Minister Prayuth uh, Chan-ocha visited the White House in October 2017, which was a shocking uh, change uh, from the Obama administration's approach towards the Thai junta, which was a lot uh, more distant and um, critical. Um, The Trump administration has done a lot to uh, reach out to uh, Southeast Asian leaders. Actually, uh, Vietnam's Prime Minister uh, Nguyen San Phuc was the first ASEAN leader to visit the White House also in 2017. Um, With regards to the Philippines, the Trump administration has – muted its criticism of the drug war uh, by President Duterte and uh, in fact, um, uh, there were news articles saying that Trump had praised Duterte's handling of extrajudicial extrajudicial killings and the drug war in a phone call um, a couple years ago. Uh, So I I think that uh, the Trump administration has taken a softer stance on human rights to to the detriment of – of its um, ability to enact more political change. But at the same time, uh, it finds itself in a sensitive position of trying to win back allies who have scorned the US because it's been very critical of the democratic regression in those countries. Just to follow up on that, Catherine, do do you think that uh, the recent situation that Hunter's just described, do you think that's going to make it more difficult for the US uh, potentially to re-engage with regards to human rights in the region? In a post-Trump era, do you mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that it will. I think that the I, – well, firstly, I can't see any human rights foundation to any of the US policies in Southeast Asia right now at all. And I think that the legitimacy of Western and external powers has always been in question when they've meddled in Southeast Asia since the Vietnam War, the most – terrible decimating meddling that um, the region has seen. So a behaviour like we see from the Trump administration, which is tactically seeking out strategic advantages that will help itself now and utilising Southeast Asian allies where it can, will only be seen in the future for what it was um, and any future human rights efforts towards diplomacy and um, human rights engagement will be delegitimized and undercut by what we see today, I think. Thank you. And to follow up on that, Cecilia, do you see any place for human rights uh, diplomacy or a, or a role for um, you know, United Nations Agency broadly in the region? Yeah, I think this is an interesting topic linked to the United States and its role. I think a lot of states in this era, you know, we we do tend to look at the negatives associated with the Trump with the Trump administration, but I think on some of the positives, it's actually and given some breathing space to states to think a little bit more creatively about their role and their strategies in moving forward. And there's different ways that this could go. I think it, you know, there uh, different coalitions of states who could become much more assertive in trying to advocate and protect the international norms and standards and frameworks that we have. And I think there are those who may seek to exploit this um, kind of breathing space at the international level to reimagine what 
those um, aspects of the international order and the rules that govern the system might look like. I think in our region, there's a very strong commitment to the language of a rules-based international order. And I, I don't think that states are being disingenuous when they talk about that. I think it's um, the security and the stability of the region really hinges on the maintenance of a global system of order. The United Nations is the, the focal point of that, but also other forms of security architecture, uh, multilateral organisations and so on. So I don't think that we're going to see states in the region um, including China, but um, the other states that we've been talking about um, trying to uh, unpack the, those institutions and that order. Where I do see changes happening is perhaps challenges to what some of us would talk about the international liberal order and perhaps just the um, the fact we take for granted that values of human rights and democracy uh, are somehow given uh, tenets of that international order, that perhaps there are other ways of imagining what the collective good might look like and what those values that underpin the system might be. And I think China is starting to be um, more assertive and clearer about what some of those tenets might look like in terms of state-led development. Um, they support peacekeeping operations, and um, those are often also linked to areas of access to resources and economic stability. So those, I think we have to be open-minded about where we're headed because we are seeing diversity, we are seeing fragmentation, but we are also seeing opportunities for, for new structures and, and uh, new modes of engagement um, and allowing other states um, to have a greater role um, in the creation of that order um, is, is something that we're, we're watching at the moment. Thanks. Uh, that's, yeah, some really interesting insights there. I think... Uh just to come back uh, quickly, Catherine, you mentioned earlier on the the principles within ASEAN of, of non-interference and, and consensus-based decision-making. And I think one of the things that Cecilia touched on there was the importance in terms of economic development, that all states have got an interest in regional cohesion, as it were. Uh, what what potential role do you think you could see ASEAN playing you know, whether it's quiet or, or behind the scenes uh, in terms of protecting human rights across the region? I think that ASEAN has long talked about economic integration um, as one of its guide driving principles, but in actual fact, it has been not entirely successful in achieving that so far. So there was a vision for a while of um, a liberal economic type order underpinning mobility of goods and services and um, and gradual growing of a middle class, all of which would breed a human rights culture across Southeast Asia. That's less visible now as a near potential reality than it might have been a couple of decades ago, I think. Um, so what positively... ASEAN can contribute might be in the gradual strengthening of those institutions that it has established. And the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights has got a representative from each of the 10 ASEAN member states. It has as yet untapped power to speak out on human rights as a human rights institution. There are individual commissioners within that organisation who are um, human rights warriors, really, and who are determined that the institution won't sink in vain with the many other ASEAN statements and institutions that nothing much happens with. So I think that there is potential in that institution and that there is perhaps greater chance of success with that institution then there might be with um, action and statements from either the US or the UN or the West in general because of the sensitivity Southeast Asian states have to external criticism, whereas listening to the voices of their regional colleagues and neighbours um, is potentially more productive in affecting change. So that's one possible path for gradual human rights sensitization across the region. So we, we heard a bit about untapped potential. So and with that, with our podcast now slowly also coming to an end already, unfortunately, I think we could 
be going on about this for quite a long time. I'd like to eat, ask each single one of you about what recommendation you'd give to policymakers if they want to make an improvement on human rights in Southeast Asia. May that be another third country, may that policymakers within those countries or in regional or uh, global organizations. So maybe I'll start with you, Hunter. Uh, that's a tricky question. I'm, I'm fortunate I'm not a policymaker. Um, I'd say firstly, listen to uh, ASEAN leaders and, and these countries' leaders and what does human rights mean to them in their countries. Um, but also, I think uh, in the case – so I'm an American. I'm thinking of US policy. Um, we, we have a number of carrots and sticks and I think it's, a, it's smart to wield those in proportional balance. Uh, too often we tend to focus on only the sticks or only the carrots, so all engagement or or economic sanctions uh, and isolation on the other hand. Um, and I think a more skillful balance of those two could recalibrate U.S. policy to uh, both keep friends but keep influence and be critical of our friends and, and countries in the region that uh, aren't living up to uh, international human rights norms. Catherine, what would be your recommendation? I I think that for all of the um, cautious and negative sort of sentiments that have been expressed about ASEAN, that it, it probably is the greatest hope for realising human rights in the region because there is a particular advantage to a group of states coming together and themselves setting up a framework for human rights, defining human rights themselves, as Hunter said, this is what it means to us, these are our priorities, and this is how we're going to realise them within our collective of states. So my advice and recommendations to Australia, the West, would be prop up ASEAN, support its legitimacy whenever you can, and, um, and support the commissioners doing their work within the region. Cecilia? Yeah, I think there's an, a number of fronts. Um, I'm going to speak to the Australian policy context and say, firstly, I think Australia is um, an incredible international advocate for human rights and for humanitarian principles at large. Um, it's been a, you know, a, a massive advocate for the responsibility to protect. Uh, and if I was just to you know, quickly jump back to the Rohingya situation, what we saw Australia do in that case was actually bypass ASEAN and bilateral um, negotiations, not completely, but really put a lot of their effort behind the Human Rights Council supporting the fact-finding mission and the independent mechanism. But I think that Australia needs to find a voice bilaterally to be able to engage not um, with human rights questions more directly and to find a coherence between that international advocacy with its regional and bilateral relations in the um, in the country. And I think we have that advantage that we do have very strong partnerships and relationships and understanding of the region that uh, I think Australia uh, could be doing a lot more in the region in a way that's consistent with its international stance. Thank you so much, Catherine, Cecilia and Hunter. I'm sure uh, Australian policymakers will be listening into this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And listeners, don't forget to stick around for our part three of our podcast where we go over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, how about we hear from Sarah Bice and Martin Pears about their all new podcasting for policymakers course. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio? Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for. I'm Martin Pierce, And I'm Sarah Bice. And we're running a very special podcasting for professionals short course here at the ANU's Crawford School. We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience. We'll answer all the questions you might have, like... What should I call my podcast? What formats work? What equipment do I need? How do I do interviews? How do I write a script? How the hell do I use this audio editing software? How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience? And how do I know if I've been successful? So many questions, Martin. And so many answers, Sarah. Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth. And you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast game. That's Podcasting for Professionals short course. Find out more at bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. That's bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting.
thank you so much, Catherine, Cecilia and Hunter for coming onto our podcast and having this very great discussion. Paul, what did you think of it? I think it was a very powerful discussion. I think one of the things that really resonated with me that uh, I think both uh, Cecilia and Catherine mentioned was that it's very important not to try and impose, if you like, um, you know, liberal democratic values or a, or a idea of of what human rights are uh, specifically in terms of um, social rights or, or freedom of speech and to think about economic rights as well and the importance of how human rights are viewed in a particular country I thought it was really interesting inside what I thought was interesting was I, I think it was Catherine who mentioned this um that when the US the US pulling out of the region a little bit is also presents a chance for countries to kind of find their own place and to work together more in a regional context, which is why she was quite hopeful about uh, ASEAN maybe being a construct that might help in the future to kind of find more common ground among states instead of having more outside influence. So I guess that kind of ties in with what you just said. Mm, absolutely. So yes, listeners, you heard what Paul and I thought about the discussion, but we, as always, want to know what you thought about it. So please send us your feedback, questions, comments via Twitter at, at that's apps, at apps Policy Forum, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, that's our group, or email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Because each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of your questions and respond to what you've sent to us. And the first one up is a podcast, Poverty as a Political Choice with Philip Alston, a very good podcast. I would definitely recommend checking it out if you haven't done so already. On this podcast, we talked to Professor Alston, who's also the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, about whether the human rights community is doing enough to tackle climate change. We also talk about his controversial report into poverty in the UK and how it feels to have world leaders in the media criticize you and your work. We had a comment from Mark Zenka on the Policy Forum pod group. Thank you very much, Mark, for your comment. We always appreciate hearing from you. And also, forgive me, I have shortened it a tiny bit. So if you want to check out the full comment, please go onto our Facebook group. Um, he, Mark writes... An excellent podcast. There is a real cognitive dissonance in our society, I think, the right, if it is one, to overexploit natural resources for profit and in the course of doing so to commit billions of people to death as a consequence is a denial of human rights of the first order. But that is the inevitable result of climate change caused by the overexploitation of resources. The earth sciences have been screaming about this for many decades, but the economic paradigm requires a continuation of business as usual. Your thoughts, Paul? Oh, thanks, Julio. Well, look, I think Mark has picked up on a, a really important topic and theme here. It's undeniable that the uh, places and the people who will uh, be affected by climate change the most and have got the least capacity to adapt will be the poor. And that's, that, that is where mo most of the damages in, in terms of climate change will occur. And richer countries, uh, there is a greater capacity to be able to adapt, to be able to deal with heat waves, extreme weather, and whatnot. Uh, and I think, yeah, framing climate change as, as a, a matter of, of poverty and human rights is a, a really useful framing. I would uh, say, though, in terms of Mark's final comment there about the economic paradigm requires a continuation of business as usual, I'm, I'm not quite sure that's right. I think the economic paradigm is definitely changing. Now, I think it was the 1970s, was it maybe, when the Club of Rome started talking about the limits of growth? Well, I think that that is true if we just think about uh, GDP and we think about economic growth in the way in which we've thought about it in the past. GDP is a, is a pretty new concept. It's something that only started being used after the Second World War uh, in the 20th century. And we're starting to reframe how we think about economic development, economic production. And an important thing is to start thinking about natural capital, start valuing ecosystem services. And once we start to actually incorporate the value of the environment uh, into our decision-making and into our production activities and the things we buy from the shop or uh, the, the products that we sell – and we include things like a carbon price and incorporate those external uh, social costs 
uh, and and the damage that's imposed on the environment by particular economic activities, uh, then I think the economic paradigm uh, will change. And I think it is very much changing. Uh, and uh, we need to do what we can to help that process. Well, it seems to be a bit of a hopeful note. So let's see how, how things progress in the next in the years to come. Thank you for your thoughts on that, Paul. And also a big thank you for to everyone else who has commented and a reminder to keep please sending us your comments and your questions. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum at our Policy Forum pod group on Facebook or email us podcast at policyforum.net. And in this section of the podcast, we usually welcome our new members. And I, as always, apologize for any mispronunciations of your names because I undoubtedly will mispronounce some of your names. So um, bear with me while I'm trying my best. I'd like to welcome Daniel Greenaway, Jamal Talagi Vedriaki, South Asia Time UK, Peter Ontario, and Kurt Vold to our podcast gang. It's so great to have you on board. And with that, I think, Kurt, you were number 200. We've cracked the 200. That's so exciting. We're really happy to see this group grow and thrive. And we hope that you all get involved in the gr- in the great discussions that we're having. So, And also big thanks to Kurt, who has already submitted his suggestion for a future episode of Policy Forum Pod. Kurt wrote, Japan's future military involvement in the Indo-Pacific. Very, very interesting topic, I think, don't you? Agree? I think that sounds like a great topic. And uh, we definitely have... Uh, some leading scholars and practitioners at the Crawford School who could speak to that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And all across, I think, the university, we have great talent to dip into with this topic. And we haven't done something on Japan in a while. And I think particularly with uh, Japan's involvement in uh, different island conflicts, this might be a very, very interesting topic to unpick. I remember this from my studies. We've talked about this topic a lot, so I'm personally interested in hearing more about it. So as, you, as you've heard, listeners, we're really keen to get your thoughts on what topics you'd like to see us cover in the podcast. So just get in touch with us. The best way to do that is the Facebook podcast group. So just join us there. And if you have enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. That will only take you 30 seconds, I promise. Just find that fifth star and it will be a big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. This episode has been produced by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production of Martin Pierce, extra and extra writing from Lydia Kim. And we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Julia, cheerio. And from me, Paul, see you later. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.